Beginning in John chapter 11, verse 45, we're going to read through to John chapter 12, verse 8. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Mary served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. So as we return to the Gospel of John this morning, we've come to a point of transition in the narrative. And here at this point in the narrative, there is a focus, an increasing focus on the imminent death of the Lord Jesus. And there is a sense that, that starting now, after the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, the, the shadow of the death of Jesus hangs over the narrative, hangs over this account. Now we're told that it's, it was six days before the Passover. And even there, we're reminded what John says at the beginning of the gospel, what, the, what John the Baptist declares, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he tells us it was six days before the Passover. Here the Lamb of God is drawing near towards Jerusalem. And John writes here twice in verse 1 and then in verse 3, therefore. 
Uh, because it is six days to the Passover. Therefore, for this reason, Jesus came to Bethany. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to lay down his life. And also, we see in verse 3, Therefore, again, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Because it was six days to the Passover, because Jesus' death was imminent, therefore, for that reason, Jesus anointed, or Mary anointed his feet with that expensive ointment. And so there is now the, the, the shadow of the death of our Lord Jesus that is cast over this account. Now at the end of chapter 11, and then at the beginning of chapter 12, we have two gatherings. Uh, first, there's the council in Jerusalem. That's one gathering. Uh, the reason for the gathering is Jesus himself. That's why that council came together. It's because of Jesus. And then we have another gathering in Bethany. In this, in this case, it's a dinner party. Now the dinner was for him, for Jesus. So we have these two gatherings. We have the council in Jerusalem gathered because of Jesus. And then we have this dinner party in Bethany. A group of friends, a family that have come together around him because of Jesus. Now the gathering in Jerusalem, that council, is united. And it is, it is a group of otherwise opponents, otherwise enemies. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who were enemies. They now come together. They are united in their conspiracy against the Lord Jesus. And then we have this gathering of friends of family in, Beth- in Bethany. And it seems as though they are united too, but we know that Judas is there. And so even there, there's tension, there's division. And it comes out in the response to Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And as we consider these two gatherings, the council in Jerusalem, the dinner party in Bethany... I want us to consider the question that the council asks. You can see that in verse 47. What are we to do? Now they've come together to talk about Jesus. And their question is, in response to Jesus, what are we to do? And so I want us to consider this question. And consider how the different people in the account, Caiaphas and Mary and Judas, respond to Jesus. And how they answer this question. What are we to do in response to Jesus? And we'll see that both Caiaphas and Judas, in response to Jesus, and in response to this question, what are, what are we to do? For them, this is a question of self-interest. Their concern is, how is this affecting us? What does this have to do with me? And their concern is, what are the political implications? And what personal gain can I get from this? It's a question of self-interest, self-preservation, personal gain. That's Caiaphas and Judas. But for Mary, notice her response. Her response is an act of adoration, an act of humble love. And she stoops down and she pours out this expensive ointment on the feet of our Lord. And she wipes his feet with her hair. Now first, let's let's consider Caiaphas. There's a reason that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, although they were opponents, came together because they recognized the implications and the the broader social political implications of Jesus' growing popularity. And even though they had very different views of who they were as Israel and the response to the Roman occupation and oppression, 
They both recognize that Jesus is going to disrupt the, the, the balance of power. And so they come together and they ask this question, what are we to do? And they are concerned about the Romans. This is a problem with the Romans. And for them, it's a political question. And it requires a political answer, a political solution. And so they come together and they, they conspire together. We need to make sure that our arrangement with Rome, our compromise with Rome, our peace with Rome is maintained. So what are we going to do about Jesus? And for Caiaphas, the answer is simple. Take him out. And so he says to them in verse 49 and 50, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now I recognize that given the times in which we live, we're tempted to spend a long time thinking about, okay, this political conspiracy and these people in power and this council and you know, how, how are they responding to Jesus and don't we see a lot of that going on right now? And it is worth considering the, the way in which the nations conspire against our Lord and, and against his people. And Psalm 2, in Psalm 2, that's a focus. How the nations, how those in, in power come together and conspire against the Lord's anointed and the people who belong to the Lord. But we need to pay attention to John's primary concern here. And his primary concern needs to be our primary concern. And he doesn't offer social or political commentary in response to what Caiaphas says. And it's significant that John himself comments on this. Because you'll notice as we've been reading through John's gospel, he, every once in a while, he'll make a comment. He'll clarify something. He'll explain something. Here he makes a comment. And it's a theological comment. And so our primary concern here is John's primary concern, which is theological. So this is what John says. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They made plans to put him to death. That was their conspiracy. But what John is telling us is, Caiaphas was not speaking of his own accord. He was prophesying. The implication is what the decisions of that council were not primarily the decisions of that council. They were the decisions of God himself. And the plan to put Jesus to death originated in the council of God himself. It's his plan. It's God's plan. And what is about to unfold in the gospel is the unfolding of God's plan for his son. And yes, it's their plan to put him to death. But what John wants us to see here is behind that is God's plan. And the deeper question is not, what are we to do? The deeper question is, what is God doing? And we always need to remember that question because it's very easy for us in, in the circumstances and situations of life to think, what am I to do? What are we going to do? But the question is, what is God doing in this? What is he doing? We'll see that Mary understands what God's doing. She sees. And the early church recognized that even despite the, the conspiracies and, and, and the counsels of those in power, they recognized what God was doing. 
and their own experience. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 4 when they came together to pray because they were being, they were being persecuted and they were being told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They came together and they prayed and they, Psalm 2 guided their prayer. And they said, yes, the nations do rage and conspire. And we've seen that in our own time. And then they say this in their prayer, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were, both, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They came together, they conspired to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so it is with this council in Jerusalem. They came together to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And yes, it was their plan to put him to death, but it was God's plan to put him to death. And remember what our Lord says in the previous chapter, John 10. I lay down my life for my sheep. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. And Jesus went to Jerusalem six days before the Passover because he was going to lay down his life of his own accord. Not because of the council, not because of the conspiracy, not because of their plan to put him to death. Of his own accord. And he would take it up again. And this is a reminder to us that, like, what is going on here? and What is God doing in this? And surely he's turned his face away from me, or surely he's not involved in what's going on. What we see here, and what John tells us, this is, this is the theological interpretation of what's going on. That they are doing, this council is doing, whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And so it is for each one of us in our lives. There's nothing that's left to chance. God is not standing back wondering, okay, how do I... How do I intervene in this situation and provide some comfort? No, our, our, hand, our life is in the hands of our loving and strong Savior. And nothing happens in our life that is not according to his good and perfect plan. And at the time, we may not have the eyes to see it or recognize it. That's why we need faith. That's why we need to trust what his word says. That's why we need John's comment on this. That Caiaphas was not speaking of his own accord, but according to what God had purposed and planned. So that's Caiaphas. And behind Caiaphas' response, we see what God is doing. We see God's work. And then Mary. Now in one sense, Caiaphas is shrewd. You know, he's living in the real world, so to speak. This is a shrewd political response to what's going on. And people may have recognized, you know, his, his wisdom, his earthly wisdom in that sense. But Mary has true wisdom. Mary really sees what's going on here. She has the eyes of faith. And so at this dinner party, she gets up from the table and she goes to Jesus and she breaks open this expensive jar of perfume, of ointment. And she pours it out on his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, we need to recognize the significance of this act in the cultural context of the first century. 
Because the first century culture, this is generally the case in the ancient Near East. It was certainly the case in Judea. It was an honor-shame society. And people were expected to interact and to behave and to relate to one another according to these shared values of honor and shame. And we're told that it was Mary and Martha and Lazarus who were the hosts of this meal. They, she, Mary was in a position of honor at the table. And given that position of honor, she was ex- expected to behave a certain way at the table. Now also in the ancient world, there was a view of the human body as, a, as kind of a spectrum of honor. So the head was honorable. The head is where glory resided. Uh, the feet were dishonorable. The feet were shameful. That's still the case in the Middle East today. In the Middle East, people are very careful about how, how, what they're doing with their feet. You know, oftentimes, uh, men in a business meeting in the Middle East, they, they'll be careful how they sit, not to put their foot up, not to show the other person the bottom of their foot. And that was the case in the first century, even more so. And so for Mary to bend down and to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair was to take what was her glory. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11, The hair of a woman is her glory. It's a sign of her glory. It signifies that. Mary bends down and she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. That means she is giving him her glory, all her glory. And in the ancient world, only slaves would ever dare to bend down to the feet, the level of the feet, for your head to be level with the other person's feet. Only slaves would do that because they had no honor. This is why we'll see in a couple of weeks why the disciples were so shocked when Jesus would bend down and wash their feet. But here, this is what Mary does. And she takes her hair, she takes her glory, and she wipes his feet. She gives him all her glory. And yet, think about this. She was wiping the ointment off of his feet. This ointment of anointing. The ointment, the the fragrance of which filled the whole house. The ointment which was preparing his body for burial. And she was wiping that ointment off with her hair. That means he bears the aroma of this ointment. And she now also bears the aroma of this ointment. And so she shares in the aroma of Christ. She bends down and gives him all her glory, but now she bears the aroma of Christ. She's been glorified. Her hair has been glorified with the aroma of Christ, the glory of Christ. And this shows us that in our humiliation, in our repentance, in our surrender, our submission to Christ, and giving him all our glory, we are glorified. We come to bear his his. The, the aroma of his risen life. And then we have Judas. And Judas is outraged by what Mary has done. No doubt the other disciples were shocked by it too. We can imagine around the table a, a lot of awkward looks. And we know from Luke's account, or from Mark's account of, of this event, that all of, the, all of the disciples were grumbling about this, murmuring about this. What's she doing? But Judas speaks up. And he speaks up and he comes off as sounding very pious, very religious. This is a very expensive ointment, 300 denarii. 
That's about a year's wages. That's a lot of money. And pious Judas says, couldn't we have used this money for the poor? Think of how much good we could have done with this money, with a year's wages. Couldn't we have used this money for the poor? Now, John, again, makes a comment here. And he says, don't, don't be deceived by Judas. He's not the least bit interested about the poor. And he tells us he had charge of the money and he was a thief. And in his mind, Mary has just taken three, uh, a year's worth of wages that could have gone into the coffers that he had charge of and wasted it. Well, he, he would have had a cut of that. His only concern in this is what he's lost. And he's motivated by nothing but self-interest, nothing but personal gain. It's greed. But he comes off as saying, well, what about the poor? What about the poor? So he, he's, he seems to be taking the moral high ground. He seems to be concerned with religious duties, with piety. But if we compare Mary and Judas, we'll, we'll see here the difference between a true response to the Lord Jesus and a feigned, a fake, a false response. Because in Mary, we see a humble adoration. She lays down her life at his feet. She gives him her glory. Jesus would, would, would later say in the very next chapter, in, in chapter 12, he says that those who lose their life and hate their life in this world for my sake will gain eternal life. That's what Mary has done. But then Judas, who's simply motiv- motivated by personal gain, by self-interest, very soon, later that week, will sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, much less than 300 denarii. That's what Jesus is worth to him. To Mary, Jesus is worth her whole life, her whole reputation. To Judas, Jesus is worth 30 pieces of silver. But a week later, Mary would be rejoicing in the company of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. She would be declaring with others, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And a week later, Judas would hang himself. And it's a warning to us to examine our own hearts and ask, why, why am I here? Why am I a Christian? Do I think I'm going to get some sort of personal gain from this? Are you a Christian just out of self-interest? What can Jesus do for me? What am I going to get out of this? Or like Mary, do you recognize that here is the Son of God who's about to lay down his life for your life? And do you fall down at his feet? And do you give him all your glory? Do you give him your life? So we've considered Caiaphas and we've considered Mary. We've considered Judas. But let's also consider Jesus in this account. Because Jesus, Jesus rebukes Judas. He comes to Mary's defense. And he says to Judas, leave her alone. Leave her alone. He, made, he said the same thing to her brother Lazarus when Lazarus came out of the tomb. Now, it's translated slightly differently. In our translation, it says, unbind him, let him go. But when it says, let him go, that command concerning Lazarus, let him go, it's the same thing that he says to, to, about Mary. Let her go. Judas, let her go. 
Just as he says to the grave concerning Lazarus, let him go. And I want us to consider this, the command of our Lord concerning us. He says, let, let her go. Let him go. In the one case, what we were considering last week, I know we might imagine Jesus, you know, simp- or, yeah, Jesus speaking to those who are around Lazarus saying, you know, he's, he's wrapped up in the grave clothes. Release him. Let him go. Unwrap him. But right behind Lazarus is the grave. Right behind Lazarus is, the death, is death. And Jesus is speaking beyond the men around Lazarus. And he's speaking to the grave. He's speaking to the tomb. And he's saying, let him go. Now the reason he's saying that, because he's, he's, he's about to say, take me instead. Let him go, take me. And so he says to Judas, who's accusing Mary, leave her alone, let her go. You can sell me instead. He takes her accusations. And so we have here a beautiful picture of Jesus, who is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one who would give his life for the people, for the nation, so that the children of God would be gathered into one. And just as he said to Lazarus and just as he said to Mary, so he says to you and he says to me, concerning you and me, let him go, let her go. He says to death, let her go, let him go. He says to the one who accuses us, let him go, let her go. But he also says to his own father, let them go. And let's remember, it wasn't just the council that was planning to put him to death, the father. It's the father's council. It's God's council to put him to death. And the Lord Jesus says to his father, judge me in their place. I've taken their sin. Judge me. Condemn me. Pour out your wrath on me. And so our Lord Jesus has rescued us from sin. He's rescued us from the grave. He's rescued us from the condemnation and the accusation of our enemy. He's rescued us from the condemnation of God's law. He said concerning us, let them go. And that word that's translated, leave her be, leave her alone, let him go. It's the same word that's translated all over the place in the New Testament as forgive. It's the same word, forgive. Forgive them. And so here we have a beautiful picture of our forgiveness in Christ. We're released. We're set free. But there's another connection between these two accounts. Between the raising of Lazarus and Jesus, or Mary anointing Jesus' feet. It's not just the command. Leave her alone. Let him go. There's also the odor. There's a fragrance to both these accounts. Now remember that... When Jesus said, roll away the stone, Martha, she's very practical, said, but Lord, he's been in there four days. There will be an odor. It's going to stink. At that dinner party in Bethany, we're told that the aroma of the ointment filled the whole house. And then Jesus told Judas that Mary had kept that ointment for his burial. The aroma that filled the whole house is the aroma of Jesus' death. It's the aroma of his burial. Now the question is, why why did Lazarus stink? If Mary had this jar of expensive ointment, 
and her brother had just died, why didn't she anoint his body with that ointment? That was the usual practice. Why didn't she use it for her brother? Why didn't she follow the usual burial practice and anoint her brother's body with that oil? Because then there wouldn't have been a smell. That's the, that's the reason for the oil. But our Lord tells Judas, she was keeping it for my burial. It was for me. Because I'm the one going to the grave. And so the, the, the fragrance of this ointment that is filling the house, it's, it's the fragrance of the death of the Lord Jesus. It's the fragrance that anticipates his burial. And here we need to recognize that as Mary was wiping his feet, as the aroma of that very ointment came to her, and she too had the smell of that aroma, just as the Lord did. Yes, she was glorified in that. But she was also identifying herself with the suffering of our Lord. With the passion of our Lord. And here we need to remember that we are those, yes, who will share in his glory. But Paul says, provided we also share in his suffering. And that's something we haven't really had to contemplate as a church. It's something we really haven't had to contemplate as Christians in Canada. And it's something we do need to contemplate now. That yes, we, sh- we bear the aroma of Christ. And it is the aroma of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We bear the aroma of his life. But oftentimes the fragrance of that aroma is released because we share in his suffering. And this may have sound you know, hypothetical or theoretical two years ago. But it's not now. And we know it. We know we're going to suffer for him. But in the suffering, we, what, what's released in that is the aroma of the risen Christ. And I want to conclude by reading these verses from 2 Corinthians 4. Because Paul reflected deeply on this reality. For God, said, let light, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, hear what Paul is saying there. We will be afflicted. We will be perplexed. We will be persecuted. We will be struck down. Now, in that, we have the promise. We won't be crushed. We won't be driven to despair. We won't be forsaken. We won't be destroyed. But Paul says, in that affliction, in being perplexed, in being persecuted, in being struck down, in carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, the life of the risen Lord Jesus is manifested. And as we come to the Lord's table now, we need to remember that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we take that bread in our hand, yes, it represents the body of Christ, which was broken and given. 
for us. But we need to remember that we are the body of Christ. And every time we come and celebrate this meal, we are, we are remembering the risen presence of Christ with us. We have communion with his body. We have communion with his blood. But think about what that means. Communion with his body and communion with his blood. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And yes, we have communion with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We have communion with his eternal life. But we need to remember that it's also a call to communion with his, in his suffering. A fellowship in his suffering. And so as we come to this meal now, we have in it the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. We have in it the assurance of the eternal life we have in Christ. But we also have in it a reminder of our call to be those who bear the aroma of Christ. And to some it's the aroma of life, but to others it's the aroma of death. And so we're going to face hostility. We're going to suffer. But in that suffering, the aroma of his risen life is released. And so as we come to the table now, let's come now knowing the reality of our fellowship in his life, but also our fellowship in his suffering.